Satan will use all your emotions so he can be victorious. His name is the deceiver. The pastors don't think there's things going on in their congregation. I believe that the devil does exist. Be a disciple and make disciples. And you don't do that by being a pastor spectator. Confronting the devil with the overwhelming, almighty, omnipotent power of the Lord Jesus Christ. His power is absolute. He cannot be stopped. Welcome to Confronting the Devil, Fearless Dialogue. Here's your host, Kevin Collier. And welcome to the program. Our guests for this show, Evangelist Elvita King and the Reverend Dr. Alfonso Espinoza. But before we begin, my wife Kristen will say an opening prayer. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, we say with the Father in Mark 9. Kristen, did Luther really say that famous quote that is attributed to him, Here I stand, I can do no other. Reverend Paul McCain, publisher of Concordia Publishing House, just wrote a blog about this and concludes that Luther probably did. Here's that famous quote from the Diet of Worms, Diet being a formal assembly of the whole Roman Empire, in which Dr. Luther stood before Emperor Charles V in 1521 and spoke these words. If I am not disproved with the testimony of Scripture or with sensible arguments of reason, I am bound by the words of Scripture cited by me. As long as my conscience is held captive by the Word of God, I am neither able nor will I recant anything, since it is dangerous and threatens salvation to do something against conscience. Here I stand, I can do no other. God help me. Amen. Evangelist Alveda King is the niece of the late civil rights leader, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., a Fox News contributor, and the founder of Alveda King Ministries. Her father, Alfred Daniel King, was a Baptist minister and a civil rights activist. Alveda, welcome to the program. Hi, Kevin. Alveda, when I think of Jesus, I think of the word sacrifice. How important is personal sacrifice to being a Christian? made the ultimate sacrifice for us as Christians. We did that on the cross at Calvary thousands of years ago because of love, love for his father. God loved us so much that he gave us Christ. So that sacrifice has been made. It's a perfect model. We do not have to get on a cross because that's been done for us, but we can follow the words of Christ. Greater love has no one than this. And that person lays down his life or her life for his friend. And so the ultimate sacrifice that we can make now is obedience to God, loving and serving each other as human beings. How did political correctness come to be, and has it hurt our churches and nation? Political correctness began for us in this century and really in the 20th century with the government beginning to offer grants and various services to Christians and to churches but you would have to follow certain rules and guidelines in order to get your 501c3 or certain benefits or programs. And so we began to compromise and try to follow the pattern of the government rather than the Bible. And that, of course, has hurt us. And so now everyone wants to follow human law and do what's politically correct according to human law. But too many of us have to die in God's law. Alvita, how important is it that we as Christians vote for candidates that share our Christian principles? Well, what is very important for us in these days and times is that we pray and seek God's will 
And we should not say, well, I've got to vote for the lesser of two evils, but begin to minimize evil by praying and getting God's direction. We have to remember that God can actually turn the heart of any leader because the king or the ruler's hand is in God's heart, is in God's hand. And so God can turn that person according to God's will, and we just have to pray. So what we do is to look at and study the issues in the lives of those who have offered themselves to run for office and then seek the will of God and vote accordingly. Some pastors are concerned that some of what they preach might be designated as hate speech. Their church might lose tax-exempt status, and some are concerned they might even be arrested and thrown in jail. The King family is no stranger to standing up for something and ending up in jail. There is absolutely no fear for an actual church or a ministry that functions as a church to fear losing a 501c3 because you don't have to have, if you're a church, you do not have to have a 501c3 to be tax exempt. So sometimes we are just going by what is the popular norm and what's being said without really knowing what our rights are as ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. However, if having a 501c3 will prevent us from proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we need to let the 501c3 go and trust God to take care of us. As far as going to jail for being willing to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, we should be able and willing to do that. It's not comfortable, but if we are in ministry for comfort, then we need to take another look at asking God to bless us with another vocation. If it's not going to work for us, we have to ask God, I'm not up to this. Would you please find something else for me to do? That may be hard medicine. That may be hard for people to hear. But if someone is in ministry and they're fearful, then they need to rely on the mercy of God to help them find something that would be more meaningful where they could serve him uh, without that fear. Alvita, the End Times narrative is pervasive on Christian TV and talk radio. There's concern that the power grid might go down or a financial collapse, terrorist attacks, you name it. Preppers are storing up and watching the signs. This is a time to be not fearful and not tearful, but to be bold in the Lord, to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. As far as storing up food and things like that and water, I don't have a position on that one way or the other. It's probably okay to do it because you saw the ten virgins in the Bible who had their oil in their lamps and they kept it there and it was ready when the bridegroom came. But that's not really talking about natural food and natural water. That's spiritual food and spiritual water. So if you want to put up some natural products and tuck them away for a rough time, I'm not saying do that or don't do that. But we have to pay more attention up what we need spiritually in these end times because Christ is coming back for a victorious church without spot or wrinkle and because that's the case then we need to be strong and trusting God not in our own strength not going to be by our might or our power it'll be by the spirit of the living God working through us and once we have that we have our confidence in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit and then we are able to do those things that we must do Yes, uh, these various grids are going to fall, foundations, the infrastructures of the cities. I live in Georgia. I live in the Atlanta area. A couple of pumps went out, I think it was yesterday or the day before, and it polluted the water for miles. So those kinds of things are going to continue to happen, but we need to be spiritually prepared while we are trying to be naturally safe. Many folks who watch Christian TV are attracted to ministries that preach the prosperity gospel. But how is that the devil's tool? 
My pastor passed away, Pastor Alan McNeil, 28 years my mentor, on October 10th, 2015. And during his lifetime, he taught us to tithe and to give and to be generous uh, with our blessings, and certainly you should do that. In the process, as you do that, the windows of heaven, according to the book of Malachi, do open and God does pour us out blessings. But the goal is not to achieve the riches and the natural earthly money, but to be blessed of God and be blessing to others. And so we get off track with the prosperity message in that we're trying to then begin to get things rather than to bless others. And that's the problem. Alvita, the devil is always working to distance us from Jesus Christ. What do we as Christians have to remember in times of despair? Jesus came to overcome the works of the devil. He to destroy the works of the devil. The devil's job is to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus came that we might have life and have it more abundantly. So we are never to be overcome by evil. We are to overcome with evil with good because God is good. We should be in a time of occupation during the end times. Jesus said, occupy till I come. And we occupy in power as we worship the Lord, as we study the word and use the weapons of our warfare, which are not carnal, for the mighty still pulling down strongholds. The most effective weapon against Satan is praise, because God inhabits the praises of his people, but it must come in spirit and in truth. And if we're worshiping God in spirit and truth and praising the Lord, out of pure hearts with clean hands, then the devil actually has to flee. There's a song, In the Name of Jesus, we have the victory in the name of Jesus, demons have to flee. Tell me who can stand against us when we call on that great name, Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus. And as we do that, as we praise the Lord in spirit and in truth, he inhabits the praises and he empowers us to overcome. What are some of the lies that Satan tells us to scare us the most? Satan is such a liar. <laughs> it's, uh, it's hard to even know and say what they are, but uh, you're sick and you're going to die. You're broke. You just need to be disgusted unless you come and worship me. I guess the same trick he used, try to use on Jesus up on the Mount of Temptation. And he says, if, you know, I'll give you all this if you bow down and worship me. And basically, Jesus said, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And when Jesus spoke it as written, he's just speaking truth, you see. And so when Satan comes with those lies and tries to tempt us with things and says how good it would be if we just served him, on the other side of that is just absolute disaster. Albedia, as Christians, we are often defined more by what we are against than what we are for. How can we change that? Well, if God be for us, who can be against us? And we can be anti-abortion, for example. That's the work that I do with Priest for Life as Director of Civil Rights for the Unborn. But I'm for life. And so people may say I'm against gay marriage. And I say I'm for procreation and natural marriage. So we should be quick to proclaim what we are for because God is for us. And I'm not saying you never say you're anti-abortion or anything like that. Of course I am. But I learned that you never take something away from someone unless you give them something better. And what we can offer in Christ is always better than what the devil can offer. But that wonderful scripture, that timeless scripture that says the way to repent is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. We're very quick to talk about the wages of sin and they're real, but the gift of God is eternal life. So why not just to say to people, you don't have to do that. You're better than that. 
God has a more excellent way for you. Paul talks about that. The goodness of God is a more excellent way, then many people will come away from darkness into light. Elvita, can you end with a closing prayer? Well, dear listeners, let's, let's we approach God together and thank you for this powerful podcast. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for the opportunity to know your word, to have your word living in our lives. Jesus Christ, today, yesterday, and forever the same. Uh, the power of your Holy Spirit, Father, and you is our Father. Now, bless and enlighten those who listen with truth, Lord, and guide us in your way. And we thank you that we are overcoming the works of the devil, Lord, just by praising the name of Jesus. So we bless you and we love you in Jesus' mighty name, Father. Amen. Thank you so much, Elvita. Thank you for this opportunity. God bless you and your listeners. God bless you and your ministry. The Reverend Dr. Alfonso Espinoza presides over St. Paul's Lutheran Church of Irvine, California. He specializes in teaching Christian apologetics and theology and taught for several years as an adjunct professor of theology at Concordia University in Irvine. Welcome, Dr. Espinoza, to the program. Kevin, how are you this morning? Doing well, sir. Can you tell our listeners a little about your ministry? My primary service to the Lord is as a full-time pastor. The research and the study as a PhD is certainly pertinent. Thank you for doing this, Kevin. This ministry is important to us. We have to indeed confront the evil one. Well, thank you. It's a mission we both share. Dr. Espinoza, you literally wrote the book about end times fears in American Christians. That was the topic of your PhD dissertation. You also went on a mission trip to India with another expert in fear, the Reverend Dr. Robert Bennett, who's been a guest on this program. Why are American Christians so afraid? Don't they believe that the omnipotent God dwells within them? That's a good question because the teaching on sanctification and fellowship with God, union with God, in an American neo-evangelical context is rather enthusiastic, and it has typically a strong idea or confession of walking with God, being with God, God being present. And you mentioned just being omnipresent, being with his people. So yes, that idea is there that God is with us. Certainly not from a Lutheran sacramental aspect, but nevertheless, it's still there. So you're asking a good question. If you have that kind of neo-evangelical conviction that God is with us, then why have a eschatological system that would breed anxiety and worry? It really is a uh, challenging, confounding situation that merges together. Certainly, I would acknowledge that because there are so many evangelicals in America, it is sometimes difficult to define their group. Indeed, I'm sure some of them would say, you know, I embrace a rapturous theology, etc., etc., and I don't live in fear. However, having said that, there are many others who are in it or who have come out of it who have confessed that they do indeed live in fear, so that the way I would reconcile the two seeming contradictory elements is that, yes, God is with me, but he's with me because I play an important role in human history to be among the chosen who live in the end times. And while he's with me, I have to soldier up. I'm one of those who have been called to be an evangelist during the end times, to live out his will during the end times, and that breeds a very strong sense of responsibility, and oftentimes a strong sense of anxiety. And of course, from my standpoint as a pastor in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, I bemoan that situation because what it's lacking is the comfort that comes through the constant coming of Christ through the Holy Sacrament, for example. Your research shows that not all American believers are afraid equally. Why are evangelicals more afraid than Orthodox believers? 
there's actually many answers to that question. I'll start with the first one that comes to my mind. There is a, a belief um, that comes out of pre-tribulational, premillennial dispensationalism that puts us during the age of the church or the age of grace, which is that last dispensation before the rapture, the tribulation, etc. And because many evangelicals believe they are in that place in time, that place in history in and of itself creates a sense of alertness and anxiety and anticipation because in that system, in that teaching, there are many signs that are looked for that are indicators of the very end of time in terms of the rapture and the tribulation. Of course, I always have to qualify that, because when we talk about the last day and end of time, depending on who you're talking to, with the evangelical, the big event coming up, of course, is the rapture leading into the tribulation. So the first answer to your question, Kevin, is this belief that I have a special place in history that will be among the generation that will experience the rapture. Now, the second answer to your question is that by virtue of this theological system that is embraced, and while there is much literalistic investment in the 21 judgments, for example, in the book of Revelation, the apocalyptic language in the book of Revelation, in other words, is treated as occurring in the time-space continuum here on planet Earth. And while they see those, what we would consider to be figures and symbols and metaphors that are typical of apocalyptic literature that describe the victory of Christ over the devil, they view it in this very, very literalistic, shallow, wooden way. But while they do that, Kevin, they consider the Lord's Supper to be a metaphor. Mm -hmm. So the second answer to your question is they lose out on the comfort of the sacraments. So not only are they living in anxiety for this belief that they're in a special place of history, but they deprive themselves of God's comfort in the sacrament. So there are just two reasons. Do you think publishers push the pre-tribulation rapture narrative to capitalize on fear? You know, the Left Behind series being one example of a commercial success. You know, Tim LaHaye, Hal Lindsey. Again, that's also a good question, Kevin. You know, when I studied the pre-tribulational, premillennial, dispensational writers, there's a broad scope of those contributors. You know, you talk about people like Tim LaHaye or mm -hmm. Hal Lindsey, or you have Grant Jeffries, you have John Hagee, and then you have more serious authors like Charles Ryrie, for example. And when you look at this spectrum of writers and you ask yourself, where are they coming from? In some areas of the spectrum, you have to wonder whether or not there's a capitalistic motivation. Mm -hmm. On the other hand of the spectrum, you see some writers that are very serious about their scholarship and who seem to genuinely try to make a biblical defense for the position. So I would say in the spectrum, you probably have some very, very sincere writers who believe they're doing justice to the text and to the Lord. On the other end of the spectrum, you might have some who are opportunistic people who are taking advantage of a situation. I think what's important to appreciate is that this system is relatively new in history. It's relatively recent. It is especially perpetuated by John Nelson Darby in the early 1800s. And when you look at his credentials, you study where he came from. It's a very dubious past. It, it, it has reflections of extremes in theology and in experiential, almost occult-like aspect. And when you see things like that coming out of the main author of dispensationalism, it certainly raises many red flags as to what was going on in the perpetuation of this teaching. Now, of course, what we see in the modern times is you have the modern writers making predictions in the face of the Lord's word that says no one knows when the last day will come. Right. But contrary to our Lord's declaration, they make predictions anyway. 
Hal Lindsey made a prediction for 1988. Tim LaHaye has said uh, sometime before the end of the first quarter of the 21st century, which is before 2025. John Hagee got into the blood moon predictions recently. And so you have these modern authors who, again, in the face of Jesus's declaration that nobody knows, they seem to have the sense of urgency to make predictions. And of course, along the way, are selling a lot of books. A lot of this is connected to John Darby and the Schofield Bible, which many evangelicals are big supporters of. Why do you think this is? Right. The uh, Schofield Reference Bible was yet another major contributor to dispensationalism in America. One of the things, Kevin, that I think is important to appreciate about dispensationalism is that it provides a kind of organized system for understanding history and for understanding the future. But back up a little bit from a pastoral perspective. We know that in the Holy Scriptures, our Lord bids us to live in today. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Don't worry about tomorrow. Trouble is sufficient in this day. All of the wisdom the Lord pours out about how to live. We have to live in today. We have to trust the Lord with all of our heart, lean not upon our own understanding. All our ways acknowledge Him. He would make our path straight. But the sinful tendency, Kevin, is for people either to live in the past, to live in regret, to live in suffering, to live in guilt, to live in shame, to live in all these things that the past has and the past forges, instead of living in the present. The other tendency of the flood is to live in the future. And what does the future have? The future has the foundation for living in worry, for living in anxiety, right? So we are constantly warned not to live in the past or the future, but to live in the present. So to answer your question, I think human nature has a basic tendency to be attracted to any claim that seems to understand time. Dispensationalism not only gives an explanation for the eras and the epochs of the past, but it gives predictions of what's going to happen in the future. So it ties into the sinful interest that people have of wanting to predict the future. Think about it. This is why so many people are into tarot cards, palm reading, people in the occult who try to predict the future. Why? Because we want to know what's going to happen. This is basic human nature. And this system of dispensationalism is yet another way of trying to offer this to those who are interested. What do curious Christians need to be concerned about, or rather use discernment, with this pervasive prophetic narrative? Well, what you have to be concerned about is that anything that takes our eyes off of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the center of Holy Scripture, is a red flag and a problem. Look, our Lord has come to be the fulfillment of all prophecy. One of the things that is predominant in this view of dispensationalism is to really focus on the so-called prophecies of Scripture. And this is where, for example, that people go astray with the book of Revelation. Instead of viewing it and understanding it as an apocalyptic work that describes symbolically the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is treated as a futuristic predictive system, futuristic prediction of what's going to happen. And because of that, what we have to look out for is that we would not succumb to or fall prey to people suggesting that what the Bible's really about is to give you predictions about the future as opposed to leading you to the accomplished saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ and his current reign. So anything that detracts from a Christocentric view of the faith is to be avoided. Dr. Espinoza, do you think most of this prophetic narrative out there has a demonic aspect to it, to distract and deceive? So, uh, Kevin, there are only two sides to things. There's no such thing as straddling a fence. I would rather know someone who says, I'm either hot or I'm cold, but not 
playing the silly Vince thing. The Lord Jesus says, I wish you were hot, I wish you were cold, but because you're lukewarm, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. If a person is a believer, they should say it, they should confess it, and follow the Lord. If they're not, we know where they're at, at least we can work with that. Anything, and this is to put forth, there's only two sides. It's either yes or no. It's either believe or not. And we have to understand that in every single case, the work of the devil is to attack the faith. The work of the devil is for people not to believe. So absolutely, it's always a satanic reason and a satanic explanation for anyone who does not believe or any kind of material that detracts from Christ. It seems like the gray area you talk about encompasses a wide territory. As an example of gray area, there is no such thing as a little pregnant for an expecting mother. And the gray area is not on the side of God. The gray area is just a lighter shade of black. It's still evil. That's correct. You see, we like to talk about gradations. But any approach to truth that works with gradations is a compromise. You know, water is water or it's not water. God is God or is not God. You don't have gradations of God or gradations of water or gradations of oxygen. Something either is or it isn't. But we have to understand about the work of the evil one is that he calls into question all meaning. Things that are true and things that are false, he doesn't want to go there. He wants to perpetuate gradations. Are you sure that God really say, as he tempted in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, did God really say? So there is an assault on truth, there's an assault on meaning, there's an assault on lucidity and clarity and knowing and knowledge and epistemology. It's always questioning what we can know. Why? Because the moment you can establish a position of doubt, then you have an excuse for not believing. That's all. The devil's all over that. So right, when we're talking about gradations, that's just a fancy word for another position called anti-God. Do you think political correctness in our nation has been the devil's best friend? Political correctness is an attempt to adjust to the culture that has a trajectory in the United States of America that is reminiscent of all of the great civilizations of history. Anyone who's done their homework, who has studied the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans... All of those civilizations had a lifespan. They began, they thrived, they declined, they died. America is no different. We're on the same trajectory. It's a modern civilization that is experiencing what other civilizations in the past have experienced. What we see as leading to the decline is moral decadence. And one of the aspects of moral decadence is always the compromise of truth. You're always adjusting what truth is and what morality is. And of course, the more it gets out of hand, the more people start to turn on themselves and they start to fight amongst themselves. Recently, one of my kids pointed out to me that he knows some friends that are really struggling in their lives and they're really kind of hurting themselves. And that is the sign of the times. And my son tells me that almost every single parishioner I serve in church tells me that it's like a cancer going around society. Why does that happen? Well, it happens because of the decline of the culture. And political correctness is a way of trying to justify, say, no, that's okay. But what it is, is a decline that where a lot of people are getting hurt because they don't have God. This is why the church exists, to proclaim the gospel, to give hope to people who are feeling hopeless. Yes, the gospel is the truth. And the further people distance themselves from the truth, the more disconnected they become from the Holy Bible. And that's where people get into trouble and redefine what the truth is. 
That's correct. And to go back to the topic on the rapturous and dispensationalists, one of the things that they inject to the political discussion is the coming of Antichrist and the convergence of political systems that will agree with him. While they would agree with our concern about the decline of the culture, they take it a step further to tie it into their very literalistic predictions. And what this does, unfortunately, instead of leading people back to the hope of Christ and trusting in him, it adds an additional layer of anxiety because there are some inevitable future wars that have been predicted that must come to pass according to dispensationalism. So instead of making it better, we make it worse in the name of Christianity, which is a gigantic shame. When you look at third world countries and what's going on in the Middle East, authentic Christian persecution is taking place every day. Do you think American Christians overreact to what they perceive as assault to their faith? And we need to dial it back to see what the real picture is. Absolutely. We are supremely fat and spoiled in the United States. The Lord has been true to his promises to bless the church and to increase the church. And there are places that are growing in the faith. I think of, for example, I get to serve with our Board for National Missions in the LCMS. We send out mercy medical teams to various locations throughout the world. One of the places we go to is Madagascar. In Madagascar, the Christian church has just blossomed. It has been an incredible story of God's abundant blessing upon the church. But it's a place that knows poverty. They don't have the luxuries of Western civilization, but they don't need them. They're still happy. They're still productive. They're strong in the faith. So we have to step back and really do inventory as to what's really important. And very, very often we will complain about things that in comparison to what other countries have to go through really are not worthy of complaint. Well, we've run out of time, but I want to thank you, Dr. Espinoza, for being on the program. All right, brother. And you take care, too. Dr. Espinoza listeners will return for an entire program in an upcoming episode. Program note. At the end of our last program, there was a preview that included William Federer of American Minute. Well, Bill had a lot to say, so he is going to be the sole guest of our next program. And now my wife, Kristen, will close our program with a prayer. This is Psalm 150, verses 3 through 6. Praise him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise him with a lute and harp. Praise him with a timbrel and dance. Praise him with stringed instruments and flutes. Praise him with loud cymbals. Praise him with clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Kristen, and thank you, listeners. Until next time, remember, do not let fear paralyze your faith. This has been Confronting the Devil with your host, Kevin Collier. Visit online at confrontingthedevil.blogspot.com. Thank you.